Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is the 196th episode of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This time we continue our sequence presenting the text of No Bosses. The topic of this session's chapter is assessing participatory economics and other parts of life. The chapter begins, as they all do, with a couple of quotations. First was William Blake saying, To see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. And the second quotation was from Mikhail Bakunin. I am only free when all human beings around me, men and women alike, are equally free. And then the chapter begins. A new world needs a new economy. A new world equally needs new relations for other sides of life. Proposing a new economy, proposing a new economy, we therefore needed to compatibly support new relations elsewhere, and vice versa. Here are just a few suggestions for what change might include in some other parts of society. And here are also some intersections of participatory economics with those other parts of society. First, participatory polity and participatory economy. Consider how society accomplishes the key political functions of legislation, adjudication, and the implementation of collective agendas. If participatory economics proves valid, then similar values will likely have simultaneously informed new polity. New polity will therefore likely seek to implement self-management and justice, as well as to promote solidarity and diversity. In reverse, new political relations would likely require an economy that abides political participatory democracy, that produces workers and consumers able to participate politically, and that does not produce conflicting classes that would subvert desired political aims to advance their class agendas. To succeed, in other words, a new polity will presumably need a population prepared and inclined to participate fully. It will also need its own operations to function without class rule or even class division. I interject. There is a general way of thinking embodied here. Different parts of society that have pervasive and profound effects on people's lives, for society to be broadly stable, have to be in accord. Think of the economy, or polity, or culture, and so on, as in one sense producing people, personalities, beliefs, habits, and so on. The effects on people of different key parts need to be in reasonable accord. If the economy generates inclinations, habits, desires, seriously at odds with the polity, or vice versa, or similarly, say, the economy and kinship or culture, or any pairwise combination, that one element or the other will have to change to come into viable accord. Or think of the school system. If it is preparing everyone to expect to have a rich and diverse life that they orient and determine, and the economy or polity the graduates enter crushes that, there is a problem that will cause turmoil and some kind of resolution. Okay, so the upshot for our purposes now is that in envisioning a good economy or polity or whatever, we have to understand the intersections with other key parts of society, and our visions for different parts must be compatible or even mutually supportive. Okay, the chapter continues. One could imagine, as does the well-developed participatory political vision that has been offered, for example, by Stephen Shalom, a participatory polity built on neighborhood assemblies, plus encompassing levels of federated assemblies, plus a dramatically renovated restorative justice system, plus a new executive for implementing shared programs, such as the new Center for Disease Control. 
Such political innovations would in each case presumably honor self-management and equity and incorporate balanced job complexes. I interject. For more on political vision per se, please see the website realutopia.org. The chapter continues. To its political credit, participatory economics would supply to political life people who are well prepared by their economic activities for participatory political roles. Vice versa, participatory politics would need to similarly support new economic values and structures. Indeed, if political relations were to produce people expecting to dominate or to be subordinate, or to produce people expecting to be enriched or impoverished, such people would find their expectations not only unmet, but challenged by an accompanying participatory economy. Put differently, participants of economic life, people without class division, people empowered, people accustomed to self-managing, would presumably be well-fitted to equitable judicial interactions, to shared political agendas, and to political assemblies which might even be consumer councils with a second focus. So far, then, so good. We need political vision well beyond the brief comments here, and it should address the various defining aspects of political activity, for example, legislation, adjudication, and collective implementation. Whatever our political vision turns out to be, and I favor Shalom's proposals for a participatory polity, we can be quite confident that a just political vision will support and be supported by a participatory economy. Next, Consider the ways societies accomplish key gender, sexual, fam familial functions, including procreation, nurturance, education of the next generation, household maintenance, and diverse choices for daily life and living units. We can sensibly predict that however all this is precisely and diversely accomplished, the new revolutionized kinship, perhaps it will be participatory kinship, for example, as it has been envisioned by Lydia Sargent, Cynthia Peters, and Savina Chowdhury, would of course seek to prepare children for the most multifaceted, creative, and caring lives they might choose to pursue. It would presumably treat men, women, trans, and people of different familiar and many new sexual preferences and practices alike. What changes might eliminate the hierarchies among men and women, and the toxic masculinity and subordinated femininity those hierarchies enforce and depend on? One change might be that participatory kinship relations would overturn the familiar familial arrangement wherein men father, women mother, and young girls and boys, seeing and experiencing that division of responsibilities, become imbued with patriarchal habits, inclinations, and desires. I interject. I hope the strategy is evident. What are we seeking, and what are we trying to transcend? What institutions produce and enforce what we are trying to transcend? To the extent those institutions also accomplish needed tasks, what institutions can we develop to accomplish those needed outcomes, like positive procreation, nurturance, etc., and leave behind rejected outcomes, like inculcation of sexist habits and beliefs, and so on? The chapter continues. To avoid that, perhaps participatory kinship would include that neither men nor women, mother or father. Instead, people of all genders would parent. Another possibility, perhaps a feminist revolution will determine that activity involving directly, personally attending to the needs of others has such profoundly positive implications for personality and empathy that everyone ought to do a share of it. Rather than taking care of the young, the ill, or the elderly being something women overwhelmingly do, such activity would be considered so valuable and socially constructive of humane sentiments and empathetic capacities that it would be shared equally among men and women. 
Participatory economics sees empowering activity as so important and so essential due to its effects on those doing it that it must be universally equilibrated. Analogously, participatory kinship might see caring activity as so important and so essential, also by its effects on those doing it, that it must be universally equilibrated. If so, participatory economy would have to accommodate that aim. Likewise, participatory kinship would have to accommodate the message from the accompanying participatory economy that empowering activity must be equilibrated, not only in council-based and collectively planned work, but also in daily life activity. This would be an instance of intersectionality in a participatory society. In any case, a new economy that functions in a society with participatory kinship would have to accept and promote full and equal participation from both men and women. Women and men would have to be equally empowered and remunerated for their economic labors. Education would have to uncover and aid the development of the most multifaceted, creative, and caring young people entering new jobs and would have to provide jobs which would further rather than stifle all such young people. A new economy would also have to facilitate, or kinship to call for it, a fair and equal distribution of caring work. In fact, in that case, it would ideally have to alter work so that caring for those beyond self was an intrinsic part of every economic calculation. Looking at the above menu of requirements, it turns out that conditions for a good economy to fit with transformed kinship sound like a prescription for participatory economics. In this case, as with politics earlier, so far so good. We need to win new kinship because changes in other domains would not alone liberate sexuality and gender as fully as desired. We can then be confident, however, that such new kinship can support and be supported by participatory economics. But wait, not so fast. An additional and more specific question arises. What about household labor? What about the oft-raised demand, wages for housework? How might this clear intersection of economics and kinship be handled in a good society? There is a context to first clarify. The wages for housework demand and its associated ideas were first offered decades ago. The aim was to address problems in the then current society, problems which are now somewhat reduced, but regrettably still very much with us. But would the question of how to organize a new society benefit from a different answer than the question of how should we combat various ills in this one? One way to respond is to say that in a good society, raising children, furnishing and caring for a dwelling, cooking for one's housemates, and tending to one's living group needs should be addressed like all work. We should not only offer wages for housework, as a demand now, but we should also propose wages for housework for a new society. This may well be the view of many and perhaps most readers of this book, but is there any other answer? We certainly want a new society to fix the injustices associated with past approaches to what we can call, for convenience, household activity. But is the path that Wages for Housework proposes, though it is possible, the best solution? Doesn't it present a pretty daunting problem when we think not about today's society and economy, but about the one we would like to have for our future? What would it mean, that is, not as a demand for now, which is one thing, but if it was adopted as a feature of a new society and a new economy. An analogy may clarify the question. To today demand a $15 an hour minimum wage in the U.S. is quite progressive. To today demand a $30 an hour minimum wage would be quite radical. But to say a good society with a participatory economy should have a $15 or even a $30 minimum wage would make no sense. In fact, 
A minimum wage would be meaningless in a participatory economy because there's no difference for anyone in the rate of pay for an hour of average intensity and onerousness of socially valued work. There is no unwarranted differences in people's incomes, and what differences exist due to different duration, intensity, or onerousness are not only warranted, they also cannot get too large. So this is the sense in which one might ask, do wages for housework make sense now, and perhaps during transition to a better economy, but not make sense in an established better economy, in an established better society? In participatory economics, work occurs in balanced jobs. Workers remunerated for duration, intensity, and onerousness for work that contributes to the overall social product. Work is collectively self-managed by workers' councils. Work inputs are requested by workers' councils in production proposals that are cooperatively assessed and refined by participatory planning. Work outputs are made available to consumers by participatory planning. All this is considered essential to have self-management, solidarity, equity, and classlessness. Would incorporating wages for housework be a positive addition? Well, in a future participatory economy, what would be the workers' council for household work? Would a household want to have its activity assessed in any way by the planning process? Also, aren't the main beneficiaries of household work the members of the household? Does that make sense? Should those who do household activity receive wages, not as an immediate corrective to present-day injustices, but as a long-term goal for a new society? Should they even want to receive income for cooking a meal for themselves, their partners, their parents, or their children, or for others in their living units, or for guests for that matter? To see the meaning of the last question, notice that we wouldn't want participatory economics to provide income for violin workers who produce violins that they then take home at no cost for their families and friends. If we allowed that, then they would receive income and receive product. Nor would we want participatory economics to provide income for farmers to produce food for themselves and their family and not for social consumption by others. And if we did opt for such a possibility in the special case of bringing up children or maintaining a living unit, who would get to say that my spending a whole lot of time constantly redesigning my living room isn't worthy of income? Who would determine how much I can play with my kids? These issues could be handled by special provisions and features to enact a reform in the present if we adopted providing income for housework as a corrective to current injustices. But would they be needed or even make sense in an established new society? Might they even be counterproductive in such a society? If we look into such matters, will it turn out that wages for housework is like balanced jobs? We would like to have it now, and beyond that, we must have it for a good economy and for a good society. Or will it turn out that wages for housework is more like a $30 minimum wage? We would like to have it now as a corrective to current injustices, but it would make no sense in a participatory economy and participatory society. To think about this, it seems most germane to ask, what is the problem, after all, that wages for housework hopes to reduce if enacted in the present? Isn't it that the unpaid time given to household labor is given overwhelmingly by women? and that the same women have less income for other work as well. More specifically, women around the world spend roughly four and a half hours per day on unpaid activity in the home, while men spend an average a little under an hour and a half per day on the same kind of activity. As a result, over 600 million women report that unpaid activity has meant that they could not seek paid employment outside the home, whereas about 40 million men said the same thing. And then, on top of it, 
women wind up in more onerous jobs at lower pay when they can work outside the home at all. The problem is obvious. Women hold up more than half the sky and are made vulnerable and dependent while doing it. There is another consideration as well. Working in the home, as compared to outside the home, has different implications for the person doing the work. While the caring aspect is positive, the isolating aspect is disempowering. A different approach to addressing the concerns that wages for housework addresses might note that a participatory economy will empower and remunerate men and women equally, albeit that would occur outside the living unit. More, supposing household work isn't remunerated in a participatory economy, there would nonetheless be average income for all who can't work, so there would be full income for all children, and for the elderly or ill who don't work. There would also presumably be free universal daycare, medical care would presumably be free, education would presumably be free, presumably meaning we can reasonably predict that future people would decide in favor of these policies. In that context, wouldn't it be possible to recognize that activity in households, cleaning, caring, cooking, maintaining, teaching, is actually unlike activity in workplaces? Indeed, wouldn't it be so different from activity in workplaces that paying people to bring up their own children, to cook for their own living units, or to clean or make more welcoming and comfortable their own rooms, would in fact, in some sense, denigrate and not elevate the activity, as well as contradicting the logic of equitable remuneration and participatory allocation. Would it make sense, for example, that people both get an income for household activity, called wages for housework, and that they also get the product of the activity for which they get the income? I clean my house, I furnish it, I decorate it, I cook for my housemates, and yet I and they not only get the product, I and they also get income for producing that product for ourselves. That is ruled out for every other kind of work. Why should this, if we decide to call it work, be different? And would it make sense that all this household activity, deemed work, and treated like all other work, would have to be part of society's production planning instead of its consumption planning, and it would have to be conducted under the auspices of a workers' council and a federation of such councils? An advocate of treating household activity as work, and therefore an advocate of wages for housework, might reply, Yes, these observations do imply that we need some special considerations for household work as compared to other work. But the fact remains, we can't allow women to be overburdened by household labors. Exactly so. But consider a person who agrees that we can't permit that problem to persist, but who also feels that to label caring for one's own children, spouse, living unit, and living partners work, and to treat it like any other work in a new participatory economy, as compared to in capitalism, would be trying to solve a problem in ways that unnecessarily subvert other values. Would such a person be wrong to urge that unlike other work, household activity, though admittedly critically important, admittedly time-consuming, admittedly productive, and admittedly horribly handled in current society, would not be properly handled in a new society by a workers' council determining what gets and what doesn't get remunerated, or by folks having to seek inputs as members of the production part of the planning process, rather than the consumption part, for cleaning their own dishes. Is this person, say me, here, who is questioning wages for housework for an established good society, just trying to avoid solving the problem of women holding up too much of the sky, just trying to preserve male advantage? What if a person agrees that the sexist distribution of household activity needs priority solving, but the same person doubts the desirability of having household activity remunerated, planned, etc.? 
What if that person asks an advocate of wages for housework, why do you think that in a transformed future we will need economics to solve the currently horrible kinship problem? Economics isn't all there is. Why can't a revolution in kinship relations themselves, a revolution that transforms families, living units, and all sides of life, plus changes in the economy, together achieve the result of ending gender inequities in all sides of life? Consider one example. In a participatory economy, in a participatory society, imagine a young child or an elderly family member needs round-the-clock help. Of course such help from care workers would be free to the recipient, because it is socially supported, and of course those doing it would have balanced jobs, receive pay like everyone else, have a workers' council, be part of planning, etc. So far, there is no issue. But suppose the mother of the child or the husband of the ill partner wants to provide the care. To do it, the mother or husband, or it could be the reverse, of course, must take off from her work or his job. The advocate of paying the person wages for household activity might then reasonably say that since society was willing to pay for a care worker to do the care work in the home, why can't society pay instead for the mother, father, or partner to do it? It could. But is that the best or even a desirable approach? Does the mother, father, partner want to have to enter into the planning process as a member of a council of daycare or private care workers? Should the mother, father, partner want remuneration for the care they wish to give? Isn't an easier and better approach which would accomplish the outcome sought at no loss of income for anyone be that the mother, father, partner simply retains their income from the job they have to take leave of to do the home care, more or less like occurs now for maternity-paternity leave, though in a participatory economy, the funds are provided by the whole society. Depending on what emerges from kinship transformations, both approaches are possible. A participatory economy could treat household activity as work like any other, or treat it as work somewhat like other work, but with caveats and dispensations. Or, a participatory economy could treat it as household activity revolutionized by participatory kinship. Whichever way this debate may go, surely we can see that participatory economics can fit well with participatory kinship. And we can also see that in the nearer term, any effective campaign to reduce the incredible injustices associated with household and caring activity and every other form of patriarchal hierarchy is both justified and able to help lead toward a transformed future. Next, consider culture community, or the ways society accomplishes the elaboration of holidays, rituals, language, and other ethnic, racial, national, and religious relations and interrelations among communities of people. Here, too, society needs new, transformed social relations. The aim would not be, I think we can guess, to homogenize different communities into one big one that stands alone. Rather, the diversity that has always characterized ethnic, religious, racial, geographic, and other cultural communities would be seen as something to preserve and even enlarge. But at the same time, such new relations would presumably want to remove hierarchies among communities, such that some dominate while others suffer deprivations. However this goal may be accomplished, for example, perhaps by an approach outlined by Justin Podor called polyculturalism or intercommunalism, that guarantees all communities conditions of self-preservation. Presumably members of different communities would not enjoy privileges denied to others or suffer indignities and denials compared to others. As a result, new community relations will likely require of an economy that it not empower or remunerate members of any one community in any lesser or greater way than members of any other community. 
And of course, participatory economics will easily comply, since it has no mechanism to even allow, much less to cause, even any two individual actors to be treated economically and justly, or overly acquisitively, much less any two communities. A more nuanced and perhaps somewhat difficult possibility exists when we consider impact in the opposite direction. Given the implications of renovated participatory economic life and prior education for the talent, skills, knowledge, and confidence of workers and consumers, diverse communities will have a hard time retaining their members if they cause some to predominantly dominate and others to predominantly obey in their cultural or other relations. Even as we preserve and protect communities and celebrate their diversity, would such internal community hierarchies operationally disappear due to this characteristic of transformed cultural community economic interrelations? I guess time will tell this like so much else. But for myself, I think I like to think so. But if not, I think we can predict that the participatory economy would in any event pose a problem for communities which have customs, holidays, practices, and the like that, for example, expect some members to be anointed and empowered and others to be followers. Likewise, communities imbuing such inclinations and expectations in their members would pose a problem for a participatory economy that expects and wants all workers and consumers to be socially caring, self-managing, and freely initiating participants. Next, Consider ecology, or the way society interacts with its natural surroundings, including using ecology's offerings and impacting ecology's evolution. To a considerable degree, this is an intrinsically economic matter. A sane, healthy, humane ecology is presumably one that continually sustains and even enhances both its human partners and its own diverse conditions. A transformed ecology would say to the economy, one, you must account for the implications of your choices on me, the surrounding ecology, and how their impact reflects back on you, the human guests. And two, you should be eager to abide ecological constraints and aims that arise from ecological wisdom but require economic attention. And so how does participatory economy reply to ecology? By design and necessity, it says, yes, the participatory economy accepts your requirements and welcomes your wise impositions. Participatory planning seeks to reveal and act in light of not only full personal and social costs and benefits of economic possibilities, but also their full ecological costs and benefits. More, participatory economy can and will eagerly abide any requirements born of ecological wisdom and brought to the economy from without. Participatory economy will itself reverse excessive resource depletion, climate destruction, pollution, and more, and it will happily accept ecological instructions regarding habitats and relations it might otherwise treat wrongfully, thereby being an ecological or green and not just sustainable economy. Of course, we could talk much more about each of the above, or we could address more specific facets of a new society, such as health and caring, sports and competing, science and exploring, or technology and investing. And we have in fact done so elsewhere, and in some references that conclude this book. But keeping this chapter short, and only indicative, precludes such exploration. However, there is one additional area I would like to briefly address, precisely because its practitioners often raise an instructive concern about participatory economics that has not been widely addressed elsewhere. Participatory art or artistic economy. So what might we expect for painting, filming, writing, singing, designing, dancing, and musicianship in a better world? 
and what implications might diverse artistic innovations have or demand from our future economy. What is better art? Painter and participatory economy advocate Jerry Frazier suggests that in the eyes of current artists, better art would be an art that is undertaken non-instrumentally and personally expressively. It would be an art that is interdirected, art that is done as an end in itself, without pressures, without external constraints, art accomplished for its own intrinsic virtues. Art accomplished to express itself, find self, understand self, and enlarge self. From these desires for transformed art, there arise some artistic concerns about participatory economics. I have encountered, for example, artists who say, wait a minute, you want artistic work to be done in accord with a workers' council? You want other workers and consumers who are not artists to have an impact on what artists do? You want me to earn an income from my art to be able to be an artist and to survive only if my art is deemed socially valuable? Come on, I don't want that. I want to be my own individual. I want to do as I wish. I want to enjoy and experience the wonder of creativity however I choose. So a question arises. Is there a contradiction between what participatory economics would likely deliver for artists and what artists themselves say they want? Participatory economics claims to be self-managing, classless, solidarity, feminist, caring, intercommunalist, and green economy. Can it also claim to be an artistic economy? The concern artists often raise suggests that artists are special and, as a result, should not be subject to any external social dynamic. I empathetically see where this view comes from. In our world, virtually everything, including singing, dancing, painting, filming, and writing, is commodified. Art is bought and sold. Its production is alienated by its commodification. With markets, art's aim shifts from personal expression and development to pleasing payers. Artists say, and I think rightfully so, in a better world, art should escape all that alienation. But the advocates of participatory economics should reply, yes, but so should all other work, and indeed so should all other activity escape that alienation. Is the solution for a good economy to treat art's escape from what has been called capitalism's cash nexus as fundamentally unlike any other work's escape from capitalism's cash nexus? Should art not abide the norms that other participatory work respects? Or is the solution for a good economy to give all work an artistic aspect and then to treat all work, including art, the same regarding norms that work should respect? Participatory economics chooses the latter course. First, it entirely removes from society class hierarchy. It entirely removes power-mediated buying and selling. In fact, it entirely removes buying and selling as we have known such activity. Second, participatory economics strives to make all work involved experiencing the wonder of engagement and the freedom of enjoyment of collective self-management. It strives to make all work involved the insights and learning that comes from expressive activity. But it also strives to make all work involve the pleasure, the pleasure and sociality of aiding others' well-being. It isn't that cleaning a research lab, an assembly area, a dance floor, a film studio, or a painting room is made entirely non-boring, much less entirely expressive. It is that self-managed work, freely chosen to fulfill oneself and others, and not to fulfill just oneself or just others, is not work as we have known it. And with that change, the performing arts become another activity, like research, doctoring, designing, building, assembling, and mining. That is, art becomes work undertaken freely to benefit oneself and also society. 
It becomes work organized in balanced job complexes. It becomes work that receives equitable remuneration. And it becomes work that is subject to oneself, but also to others who it affects. In this view, the new economy recognizes that, like all work, art should include a non-instrumental moment of self-fulfillment and an expressive moment of self-discovery. But the new economy also incorporates that, like all work that is undertaken as part of one's social contribution to economic output, art must also incorporate the desirability of benefiting and respecting the will of others beyond oneself. Well, that is my expectation at any rate. Participatory economics differs hugely, not only from capitalism, but from coordinator market economics and coordinator centrally planned economics, each misleadingly often called socialism. This is not least because various prior conceptual frameworks have obscured rather than highlighted how monopolized empowered work establishes a class between labor and capital and capitalism and elevates that same class above labor and coordinatorism. To incorporate a non-instrumental and an expressive moment into all work and to incorporate a social moment into all remunerated art makes all work into art and all art into work. And it may be that that is the ultimate capstone of paying attention to all dimensions of class and work relations in proposing a new economy. At any rate, the upshot of this short chapter is that an economy can only coexist affecting and being affected by society's other aspects. Vision for a transformed economy, polity, kinship, culture, or ecology requires that each be compatible with the rest. What we can say at this point regarding this requirement is that our proposal for participatory economics looks like, feels like, and reacts like it will have just such compatibility. And that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.